I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and you're listening to The Literary Life. My guest today is Lisa C. All of you know Lisa C. from all of her previous novels that she's written, all of them bestsellers, many of them films. But she's touring the country now for her new book called The Island of Sea Women. Lisa, it's great to have you at Books and Books again. It's so great to be here again. Uh, I really have always appreciated how you've always made Miami a stop. And I was so happy to get off the plane today. <laughs> of course. I mean, who wouldn't want to come here after going to all these cold places like Chicago? <laughs> so how's the tour been going? It's been really great. Um, but, you know, it's kind of, it's exhausting and invigorating at the same time. And it's also, you never know what's going to happen in the course of a day. You know, are people, a lot of people going to show up? Is it just going to be a small group of people? It's always great, but it, you just have to be ready for anything in a, in a sense. How long of a tour is this one? How long have you been on the road so far? I've been on the road about two weeks, I think. And uh, there's some breaks in this and I go to Canada, but it's about six weeks. So it's, you know, a, these days, that's a long, that's a long, very long, long tour. tour. Just about every other day, being in a new city or a new bookshop, or, this or every, week, every day. day, every wow. day. Where do you go from Miami at this to point? To Tampa, then uh-huh. uh, Raleigh, Durham, and Winston Salem, and then to Charlottesville, and then Washington D.C. and Scottsdale, and that's all a night, a night, a night, right. a night. Oh, really? And then hopefully spring will happen. <laughs> I hope so. Scottsdale, for sure. Yeah. Well, we're here, you know, you're, you've written this book, The Island of Sea Women, which I have to say we were talking earlier, has one of the most arresting and beautiful covers that I've seen in the last few years. 
Talk a little bit about the cover as well. So it has a photograph of these two diving women, that, that, that the name of them, they're henya, that means sea women. And what I love about the photo is that the, it's from, I think, the 1950s, and they're still wearing the original diving outfit, which was just a homemade little cotton, like, jumper. And this is what they would dive in. Uh, in really cold water. So you know, they were diving in Japan and off the coast of um, Korea, off the coast of China, and off the coast of Vladivostok in winter in this little, you know, little cotton outfit. And then the other thing is this photo also shows all the tools of their trade, including the, the um, this kind of prying tool that is strapped to the one woman's wrist. So you really get a sense of, of what they look like. And, and, you know, it's one thing to talk about their nets and their goggles and all of that, but to actually see it, I think is really helpful. I hope it's helpful for readers. Oh, it's, 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 it, I, I think this photograph and the way that it's done and the jacket I think will become a classic. It's like nothing I've ever seen. In fact, interestingly enough, all of the little sea, the sea objects that are mm -hmm. on it, if you go to the Miami International Airport, I don't know how you fly, but if you're in Terminal D, if you look on the floor... Well, I did today. Did you I was, see the I was artwork walking, on the floor? I did. I noticed that actually yeah, today. It's done by a, uh, an artist named Michelle Okadonner, who's from Miami, huh. and, although she doesn't live here now. And she spent years putting that together really? and that's what she works with she works with images from the sea or mollusks mm -hmm. or other things mm -hmm. and she incorporates that into her and that's what i immediately thought of yeah. when i saw this but that's funny because when i got off the plane i definitely <laughs> noticed it today so you have a really interesting way of sort of shining the light on particular aspects of Asian culture. Primarily, you've been writing about China mm -hmm. and things that people don't know about. So tell us a little bit about the book and how you discovered these women. So I was in a doctor's office about 10 years ago, and you know how you're waiting and waiting and hoping they'll call you in someday and flipping through magazines. And there was just this tiny little article that I saw with one photograph, one paragraph about these diving women. And I ripped it out of the magazine. And I knew even then that one day I would write about them. Uh, and I took it home. You know, I'm the kind of person who tears things out of magazines and doctor's offices. And I took it home. And over the next eight years, I was quietly collecting things. And then there came a moment when I knew this was the time. And so there's this island off the tip of South Korea where for hundreds of years they've had a matrifocal society. So not a matriarchy, but a society focused on women where the women have been free divers and they take deep breaths, they dive down about 60 feet. That's deep enough to get the bends. They stay underwater two to three minutes, harvest seafood. And so they're the breadwinners in their families and their husbands are the ones who take care of the kids, who do the cooking, who take care of the elders, who take care of the house. And so why this became so pressing time-wise for me all of a sudden was it used to be, well, we'll just say as recently as the late 1970s, there were still about 30,000 of these divers. And the young, they would retire at age 55 um, if they lived that long. It's very dangerous work. Today, they're under 4,000 of them, mm -hmm. and the youngest one is 55. So when I was there, I interviewed women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, most of whom were still diving. And they say that in about 15 years, this culture is going to be gone from the earth. So I felt 
you know, if I don't go now, even if you wait five years or 10 years, you know, that means there are going to be a lot fewer of them. And also the ones I, I find who are in their 80s, or late 80s, early 90s, that they have lived through so much history. So not only have they had this life in the sea, but they have a perspective that someone who is maybe 60 won't have. Was it difficult getting their confidence when you spoke with them? So is it a kind a of closed, is it an open it's a, it's, society? It's or? a combination of things. So some interviews were set up ahead of time. Some of them were just luck, you know, just walking along the beach. And there will be older women, especially, who actually have retired from diving, just sitting on the beach sorting algae. And I just walk up and start talking to them. Or watching a group of women go into the sea or as they're coming out of the sea, they were a little more impatient then because they were working. But the ones who were just sitting on the shore, they were willing to talk to me. And, I, you know, again, I, I have been interviewing people like this for a really long time. And what I have found, and maybe you've experienced this too, but people who are, you know, in their 80s and 90s, they've pretty much outlived every, anyone that they care about and everyone that they care about. They've lived through a tremendous amount of history. And as one woman once said to me, what are they going to do to me now? Right. And so there's this, and then one other piece of that, they're never going to see me again. And so there are times, you know, where as a kid, you might not ask your parents or grandparents certain kinds of questions, but, but a stranger can. You know, and, and maybe as a parent or a grandparent, you don't necessarily want to tell your own relatives what happened, but you will tell a stranger. And I, I do think it's because they're never going to see you again. Were there other oral histories that you could research so, and sort of Yeah, there was in? a woman who really helped me with that. Uh, there was a big oral history project done, I'm going to say, in the early 1970s. And so once I came home, every once in a while, I'd have a question. So um, yes, these women dive right off the island, but they also will, uh, would, would, were going out for itinerant work. And you know, I'm writing this scene of the two friends going off for itinerant labor, and it's like, well, how'd they get to the port? You know, they didn't have cars, they didn't have buses, so how'd they do it? And so I would send an email to this scholar, and she would send me like five oral histories on that topic. And it was fabulous because, of course, all of those women really are gone by now, but that they had, you know, talked about, oh, a recruiter would come and we'd get on the back of the truck and go in, or we'd get on a boat and go to the port. So all of these different ways, but again, it would just come from a place where all of a sudden I'd be like, hmm, how'd they do that? <laughs> and it wasn't something that I'd thought of in when I was there. Right. So it all kind of naturally evolved, the mm -hmm. research. Yeah. And, and you sort of took it as it came. Mm -hmm. Was that the same with the writing of it? Did you, as you were interviewing them, did you sort of map out a plot or did you? Well, sometimes you hear a story and you think, oh, I've got to use that right. or I've got to use some details from that. There was a woman I interviewed whose father was a Japanese collaborator. And I think 
I used a lot of the details of her early life. So that was a life of privilege. They lived in a big house. They had a big garden. They had a pond that was stocked with fish. They had fruit trees. They had a vegetable garden. The idea that she might go hungry, just it, it wasn't a possibility. And he also had a car. Nobody else had a car. So she went around the island and saw a lot more than most people did. I remember her talking about um, going to Jeju City, which is the main city on the island, and that that was the first time she'd seen electricity. And she actually thought she'd been, you know, miraculously transported to Japan because only the Japanese could have have something, would would have something so miraculous as as electricity. So when you were exploring this, um, not a matriarchal society, but a... Matrifocal. Matrifocal society... um, how, you know, in, in the context of our society today, just how unusual was it? I mean, just how, how startlingly different was it than things you had experienced? Well, and, I mean, I don't think there's very much like that today. No. I mean, yes, there's some stay-at-home dads for sure, but not that many. And in this culture... Uh, the, the men did take care of the babies and cooking and all of that, but there was this kind of old, and it's really very Asian, but also kind of Talmudic in the sense that, you know, oh, these men are going to go and sit and think under the village tree. You know, <laughs> that this is really their job is to go sit and think under the village tree. And that's a saying. So they had that. The other side of it, though, is that the women were giving them an allowance, And so it turns out when men get an allowance, they spend it on gambling, drinking, women. (laughs) So interesting. Now, being that this is a book that takes place off the coast of Korea and has its roots in a Korean culture, how different was that from what you've done before working with Chinese culture. Right. Well, of course, I grew up in a large Chinese-American family, so my knowledge of that is very wide and deep. I would say the place where I connected the most in terms of just cultural similarities is that Korea is the most Confucian of all Mm. of the Asian countries. And you know, Confucius had some pretty strong ideas about women. He, I don't think he cared for them too much. And so things like a proverb that I've actually used in every single book, including this one, when a girl obey your father, when a wife obey your husband, when a widow obey your son. And even though this island is more shamanistic, that, that kind of... Um, Confucian overlay is still there, and the pull towards Confucianism is still there. But I actually think of this as being less a Korean story, necessarily, than it is another story that I've done about women. About women, about the closest of Yeah, about the closest of women, but also just this these extraordinary things that women do in these stories... I sort of always say this, you know, lost, forgotten, deliberately covered up. In this case, it wasn't lost, it wasn't forgotten, it wasn't deliberately covered up, but it is going to disappear. And it's extraordinary. So I'm, I 
am attracted to those kinds of stories and how women, it doesn't, almost doesn't matter where, what, where they are in the world. What matters is that they're women and they're doing something remarkable. And then they have relationships. Mm. And, um, you know, I am interested in women's relationships for sure. Well, that's you know, been a thread through all. Yeah, of, through all, all through all of the books, and you know, whether it's best friends for life, or sisters, or mothers and daughters, or mothers and their children, um, you know, we have to remember, for centuries, it was really men writing about women, and yes, you had women in there, you know, Jane Austen and the Brontes and. George Eliot, and, but it really, it's only the last 75 years that women were really writing about women's experiences and women's relationships. And, and you've been masterful through all of your books about it. And you mentioned your Chinese, your large Chinese-American family as well. Mm-hmm. And that was um, brought out so beautifully in your first book. Your on, Gold Mountain. on Gold Mountain. On Gold Mountain. So talk a little bit about about that family and how that came. I know you were born in Paris, right? Right. My you... mom and dad were traveling, so right. it wasn't like they were living there. I just lived in a dresser drawer for about six <laughs> weeks, and um, they came home. Uh, so you were just f- literally physically born in Paris? Physically born. You know, no deep it connection. It could have been a hus- just a yeah. hospital that yeah. was there. Yeah. And Sounds greatly, so wonderfully exotic, though, as well. It does, I guess. So my um, mom and dad were divorced when I was three. My mother's family was very small. I mean, when I was a kid, you could probably count on two hands how many people were in her family, and now it's probably five. But my father's family was huge, you know, just really huge. And I lived with my mother, but I spent a lot of time with my father's family. And so when I looked around me as a kid, you know, what I saw were Chinese faces. What I experienced was Chinese food, Chinese language, Chinese tradition, Chinese culture. And that is the reason why I write the kinds of books I do. And your, it was your father's family that was right, Chinese. Right, my American. father's family. Right. And um, it was mo- mainly in the, the Chinatown part of L.A. Los right, Angeles, where right. Where you were mm-hmm. raised. Mm-hmm. And there's a very important, you had a grandmother who was extremely important to you my as My grandmother well. was very important to me. She's where I get my red hair. And she was married to my grandfather. You know, this is back when it was against the law for Chinese and Caucasians. Chinese down to a quarter to marry in California. It was against the law. It was against 28 states. Wow. And in California, the law was finally overturned in 1948, but the other states not till 1967. So if you think of a place like Washington State, and if you go to Seattle, and it's so incredibly diverse. Right. but people couldn't intermarry there until 1967. Um, so uh, my, my great-grandparents went to a lawyer who drew up a contract between two people, like they were forming a partnership. My grandparents went to Mexico to get married, and my own parents were only the second couple in our you know, whole extended family to be legally married in the United States. It's pretty, pretty amazing, yeah. actually, when yeah. you think about it, and how... how 
how how recent it really was. It, it really is. Yeah. You know, <laughs> of course, if you're 20, it must seem like the dark ages. But but. So uh, tell me about what was it like growing up? I mean, you grew up with that sensibility, but yet you were growing up in the 60s, where. Yeah, and Western, lived, and Western I, you know, club, and when and I, were in LA and to, I, to boot. and my, I lived with my mom, and we lived in Topanga right. Canyon. So that was a completely, so lived, yeah, we lived in Topanga in the sixties. Uh-huh. Wow, that was really interesting. Yeah, it really was. And so, did you always have that, 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 that Chinese sensibility? Was that always like lurking there, or were you? Did you go through your kind of completely American period, or? Did, did it all, was there always it was a mix? Always, I think it was always a mix. But, you know, I look back at photos, and there I am with my hair down to my knees and my goat and lots of lace, you know, when I was 16. And I think, well, I don't see any Chinese part it, in there. It was your Joni Mitchell. It was my right. definitely <laughs> my Joni Mitchell period. <laughs> but I think... I think even though I may have looked like that, I think there was always this kind of part in me that was still um, connected to my father's side of the family. Yeah. And, and you know, they really took care of me in a, in a lot of ways. So, and I spent a lot of time with them, even though I would, you know, kind of come in and look like some hippie girl. <laughs> no, you had to world in absolutely mm-hmm. two cultures yeah. that were so disparate. Yeah. But we have to talk about your mother as well okay. because your mom, Carolyn C., I'm a, I've been a bookseller long enough <laughs> that I sold your mom's books and was a big fan of her writing mm-hmm. for years and years and years. She was such an accomplished writer in her own right. Mm-hmm. And um, talk about what it was like to be the daughter of such a well-regarded writer, such a serious writer. So actually, can I go back a little further? Yeah, because my further. my mother's father was a writer too, okay. and he was a Texas newspaper man, and like many people, he wanted to write the great American novel, but he had a fondness for women, and you know kept having affairs and getting married. And there came a point. Um, also, I guess it was in the '60s. He he was 69. He was on his fifth wife. They just had a baby, and I remember going with my mom. That would have been your stepsister, right? No, 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 my step-grandmother. My step-grandmother, who was two weeks younger than my mother. (laughs) (laughs) And so we went down to visit the baby, you know, like you do. And I remember we were sitting around the kitchen table, and at that time, my mom was a single mother. She was teaching at UCLA, but also... So this baby was your aunt, basically. The baby was my uncle. Oh, he's a boy. He's a boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my mom was the way she actually earned real money because it was she was just starting out getting published was that she testified in pornography trials as an expert witness. Right. Didn't she write about that? She was, did. One of her books, book. Blue Money. Right. And my grandfather, I just remember this so clearly, sitting at this table, he was just so depressed, you know, his head in his hand. Because he was 69, he had a brand new baby who wouldn't be depressed. <laughs> and my mom had this stack of books that she needed to read for the trial coming up. And she said, oh, Daddy, you know, why don't you read one of these that might cheer you up? And so he took one and he walked down the hallway and came out a couple hours later really, yes, cheered up, but not for the reasons you'd think. <laughs> he said, you know, I could write something better than this. 
And between that time and when he died, he wrote and published 77 hardcore pornographic novels. <laughs> that's amazing. And so, you know, they say, write what you know. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so was, I had that. And then... What was his pseudonym? What did he I, write? I actually can't say them. It's, I don't think. <laughs> they, were, they were all... Um, <laughs> They play, were plays on words, you know. Yes. I think probably the only one, a polite one I could say is Hardy Peters. Uh, but they were they were all like that. But they got um, worse over the years. Great. But that was um, a very favorite. Uh, a little Hardy, bit of literary, Hardy wrote a lot. A little bit of, of literary history. You know who did that as well for money? Early, early on was the great surrealist writer Apollinaire wrote pornography. Yeah. Oh, I guess a lot of writers did that yeah. at one point or another. So I, when I was working on On Gold Mountain and I was looking at my mom's papers that were at UCLA and I found a letter from her father when my mom was first in college at, at UCLA. And um, he's, you know, clearly she always wanted to be a writer and he wrote to her, if you want to write, you have to write a thousand words a day. And of course, my mom lived that and, and that's what she taught me to do and it's what I do. But really, sort of going back to your original question, you know, what did it mean to be the daughter of somebody so well regarded as a writer? The thing is, when she first, I actually had the privilege of watching her get her first magazine article and her second. And that was in the 60s. There really weren't very many women being published, very few from California. Joan Didion would be really the only other one. And people were quite mean to her. And I can just remember my mom, you know, on the couch crying, crying, crying. And and how do you, you know, if you're from, I mean, it's hard to imagine it now, but how... Um, kind of rigid New York publishing was um, and what, how they looked at California or writers that were just on the other side of the Hudson. Right. And I think watching her go through all of that gave me a, um, I mean, certainly I learned from it, right? But by the time she was so well regarded, I you know, was so respected and uh, you know, when she died a couple of years ago, they were writing about her as like the godmother of Southern California letters. Well, right. this, you know, or the grand doyen of Southern California letters. They had all of these things that they were calling her, but she was still my mom. And uh, she encouraged me so much and helped me so much my first two magazine assignments were things that she turned down and said, oh, I know somebody who could write those for you. I, I've read interviews with her and with you, and I've reading about your relationship. It was a very, very close relationship, mm -hmm. wasn't it? And yeah. she was very encouraging about your yeah. work. And the other thing is, even though I was 12 when she first started writing, right. she, I think she's, and my sister's 10 years younger than I am, so I think she saw us as this team and that this was a cottage industry, this, this writing thing. And so even though I was only 12, she would give me something and she'd say, I just want you to read it. Does it make sense? Um, if the character is wearing a 
blue sweater on page one, is it still blue on page 30, or has it turned to purple? Um, so you became her editor it, as well. And so she was really training me to be an editor from, a, you know, from right. the time I was 12. Well, and all the way until the end, we read each other's work. Oh, is that right? And um, not this book. It was Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane. Um, 12 days before the final edits were due, she was diagnosed with cancer and she died 10 days later. So, but she had been sick and she'd right. been in the, you know, this hospital where they were taking care of her. And I was reading the manuscript to her. Oh. And she was still so incredibly attuned to writing. She you know, wrote a book review a week for 35 for years. For the Washington Post. For the right? LA Times first, and then the Washington Post for about 20 She became 20 the chief years. critic there, pretty much. I, I, well, Post. I know she had a once a week yeah. gig. No, you know, I know, so. I, but I, I remember those. Yeah, I mean, they were so... And they would actually move books. Yeah. She was a really astute critic yeah. as well. And so here she was so ill, and I'm reading the manuscript, and every once in a while she'd say, wait, 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 wait. Now go back about five minutes. That that didn't make sense to me. And there was one line I read, and I had loved this line so much. I don't remember what it was now, but I'd loved it. And she said, oh, Lisa, you're just showing off with that. You don't need that. And it was true. I think I was, and I did take it out. How interesting. Well, when you talk about it being a cottage industry, there was even a point which is uh, most people who know your work deeply or know you deeply know about it. The uh, You and your mother and your mother's husband wrote under a pseudonym, Monica right? Highland. Monica Highland. Mm -hmm. uh, t those books are, how, do, how did that all happen? And how did so you work together? I had moved home with a broken heart, and we lived in Topanga. It was a really hot summer, and we didn't have any money, and it was just so hot. And we were watching this terrible miniseries that had Lee Remick in it. And at one point, Lee Remick said, you're looking at a truly desperate woman. And we all looked at each other. And I think sort of like my grandfather with the <laughs> pornography, we said, you know, we could we write could something <laughs> better than this. And so we did. We wrote two historical novels and one book of uh, a coffee table book about old Southern California postcards. Um, I was 21, my mother was 41, John was 61, so there was quite a spread. Uh, pretty interesting when you wrote the sex scenes, you know, <laughs> with all the three of us. And I, the first few times it, we tried to work, it just was a total failure. And John went down to the, the store that was in Topanga and they had this really awful champagne for $1.99 a bottle called Chateau Topanga. And he bought two bottles of Chateau Topanga. And by the time we got done with our, you know, about halfway through our second bottle, all of our inhibitions were gone. It just all came out. Yeah. Are these books still in print? No. No, they're not. No. But you can find I'm them go on find the, them. you can find them. Every once in a while, I'm someone will go bring find them, them to an event that they've somehow found it on the internet and paid a fortune. <laughs> You know, you you know what I love. You you know you have such a large body of work now that your books have been classified as the histories, which are the ones about the, the, the Chinese China histories stuff. and uh, the books about. You but know, I the, also have the mysteries. Well, that's that what they, I was yeah. getting at. So then you have a whole series of mysteries as well. 
talk about that a little bit and, and, and the difference in your approach. And maybe you don't do as much research on those. So or... those were, you know, first it was on Gold Mountain about my family. And then the next three were the mysteries. Right. And then the next one was Snowflower and the Secret Fan. Right. And Snowflower and the Secret Fan completely changed my life. Right. And what I, when people ask me about that, I, I actually think that I learned so much doing the mysteries and that all of these books, or most books actually, have some kind of mystery in them. You know, it may not be who murdered the, right. you know, the stockbroker or whatever it is. Um, or it may not have a big conspiracy. It might not but, be a puzzle. But there, but, but, there, it... but there are those sort of emotional mysteries and secrets that people have. And so the, the, the structure... And how you do it is almost the same as with the mystery. And so writing those, you know, how you kind of lay in clues so that when you right. get to the end of, the, of a novel and now there's the big sort of emotional reveal and all the truth comes out, readers have to know, oh, yeah, that was in, now I, yeah, I see all those places that, that there were hints about that. And either I got them or I didn't. Well, I'd also argue that, that what the mysteries allow you or teach you is about moving a narrative forward as well. You have Pacing to make sure, and plot. you have to be able yeah. to, you know, not get caught up in what right. your mother talked about, how you're just showing off yeah. in terms of yeah. your writing. You really need to get that story moving right. in one way or another. The other thing that has always struck me, uh, not only are you one of the nicest people that I know in, in, in this industry. But the other thing is the way you treat your readers is, is unparalleled. Um, there was a woman who, who I was walking through the store, and she showed me the personal invitation mm -hmm. that you sent her to this event. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you did cover book books and book selling for Publishers Weekly for a while as well, but I have a feeling this comes from a natural place. So talk about that. Well, I know you do an amazing amount of but actually Skypes this, and all oh that yeah, other stuff, too. I do. Um, but actually, this really, again, goes back to that idea of a cottage industry. And so when my mom's first novel came out, it was like, how are we going to get 20 people to the bookstore? And I... There used to be in Los Angeles a department store called Henshi's. Which was the big place where books were sold back yeah, then. Yeah, it was. And they had this love. And you had to walk to get to the notions department. You right. had to walk through the book department. And so my mom would be at the table and my sister and I would grab these little old ladies who were trying to go buy thread, you know, <laughs> Come over here and see our mom's book. And so I think we, I, in the same way that I learned about writing that way, I think it was always that you have to cultivate a reader at a time and have a relationship with the reader at a time. Right. I can remember this one event with On Gold Mountain where only four people showed up. But those four people still show up today. And I think that's, I mean, I'm so grateful that they showed up that first time. I'm even more grateful that they're, well, they're still showing it's up. It's the dirty little secret of what we do. It really is book by book by book. Mm -hmm. And it's word of mouth. And it grows and it grows and it grows. And that's what a readership actually is, how you mm -hmm. develop it. And as far as the Skype stuff... Well, book I mean, there, clubs, there are book clubs have so been a many, big, big thing now. I mean, they are. They it's are. It's exploded. They, and they have, but 
I used to drive to book clubs. You know, I, any, I mean, I'd go anywhere if they'd invite me when you, when you're, when you only have an audience of four, you know, you're, you're again, it's just any, you're trying so hard to get anybody to No, but what's to really appreciated, it's no longer an audience of four, it's an audience of hundreds of thousands right. of people. So, but, so can, what I was going to say yeah, though sorry. about the Skype stuff and is I can talk to book clubs all around the country and even in other countries where they're in places they're never going to get an author come to visit. They, they may not even have a nice bookstore, you know. And so this is a way, and I get to be in their homes with them. And it's usually at the end of the day for me. I'm not writing. And what are the alternatives? You know, I could go watch bad TV. <laughs> or I could exercise, I suppose, wouldn't hurt. But, but there's something very nice for me to be in their living rooms and talking to them and I don't I don't see it as being nice to them I see it more that they're being really nice to me and inviting me in and I'm just really you know grateful that they do that and I I just enjoy it I've learned so much from book clubs so much about writing you mean in terms of what readers expectations are things like the questions so. they have for you. Yeah, or thing. Uh, I um, Snowflower and the Secret Fan is a good example where, you know, in my mind, you know, Lily is not the nicest person, and Snowflower is kind of the victim. But so many people, when I would talk to book clubs, they'd say, "Oh no, that's Snowflower. She's, she's just, you know, she, why doesn't she just?" get on with her life and why doesn't she do this and I agree completely and so even though I had a certain intention every reader reads so differently and that's one of the great things about book clubs and we tend to think of reading as being a passive activity in the sense that you're sitting there and you know the words come off the you know somebody else wrote that story wrote those characters tell you what happened and it, it, you just take it in you're just sitting there but actually I think reading is this incredibly creative activity because the words come off the page and then you're filtering through you know through your whole life experience where you were born did you have money did you not have money did you have siblings were your parents together did they hate each other um did you ever have a broken heart have you ever been through some terrible tragedy and so as we're reading, that's, those words are going through that. And so that's why what I think is so incredible about book clubs is you, everybody is doing that. And then that's what they're talking about. I mean, sometimes you hope, yes, they all get what you want. And yes, they all like it or they all hate it. But they're still, it's such a personal and creative act. Well, all the, you know, writing is a very solitary thing. And all of a sudden it becomes... Not collaborative, but you get that you get that you get that force back coming back at you mm -hmm. in a way, which I think has to be exhilarating. Some writers are more shy and don't do that, <laughs> and well, don't I'm like to do shy. that. No, no, I don't mean shy in that sense. Yeah. I mean they don't want to hear from no, I from know. their readers. Yeah, um, I just think it's very, very impressive. And and even though I know that you feel like that you're not giving back. I can tell you as a, someone who's met a lot of writers and a lot of readers of yours who appreciate mm -hmm. what you're doing immensely. Yeah. 
I mean, um, I do answer every email. I know you do. That's that's a that's it's a biggie a, in my life now. That's a gigantic. It's, it's a huge. An email thing. has exploded. It's crazy. But people, I mean, sometimes it's just you know I really like your book. Actually, this five days ago, because she wrote to me this morning, you haven't answered me in five days. And um, so five days ago, she said, I started this new book, The Island of Sea Women, and, and it's just so, there's a lot of violence, and I just don't like it. So that was the first email. Then today, it was like, you haven't written me in five days, and I just want you to know that I've gotten to this one part, and I'm not going to read any more, and I'm just really, I've always loved your books, but this one, I just can't, and I gave it to a friend, a man, and... Um, I'm so embarrassed that I gave it to him. So I saw that this morning when I'm in the airport. <laughs> and I just thought, okay, I'm going to write her back. And I, I just tried to say, you know, we have to remember how lucky we are in this country. And she was pretty grumpy. I'm, I think I made it sound nicer than it was. Yeah. And I said, you know, we have to remember how lucky we are in this country that, and, and where and when we live. And that that isn't how it is for everyone, but that one of the things that fiction does is it allows us to experience these things. And um, that I just so appreciated her, her gentle and kind heart. And when I got off the plane, she had written this lovely note, really a lovely note, that I think she's, oh, I understand what you're saying, and I'm going to finish the book now. And... And thank you for saying I had such a nice, you know, what a kind and gentle heart, and you do too, or whatever it was. But it was instead of pushing pushing back, back at yeah. her. I mean, there. Is, don't get me wrong. Five days ago, when I saw you it, I was it, like, yeah. I'm not going to answer that. Right. <laughs> I didn't erase it, but I was like, huh, I don't know if I want to answer that one. But but I think if you. There's no reason why you can't be nice back and sort of explain what you're doing. And, and um, I don't know. I don't know the point of that story. No, it's actually. a great. If only everybody would act like that on, in the Internet and on Twitter and in yeah. that world. I mean, there's so much trolling and ugliness that goes on. And even, you know, I mean, when you... When you do get an email like that's negative, the first thing you do is become a little bit right. like defensive yeah, and angry. Exactly. But if you take, you know, if you just if you just breathe, right. it's good to wait five days yeah, to answer an email <laughs> so that you don't just overreact mm -hmm. to it. But there are two final questions that I have for you that I okay. wanted to explore. One, and we can't, we probably shouldn't go into depth on this, obviously. But being that you're writing, now, I mean, it's it's kind of amazing. I mean, you've written, been writing about Asia, and you're writing about China, and now Korea, so much in the news. All of this. Mm -hmm. How far? How difficult is it for you to stay out of the politics of it all, or is it? Well, this book ends in 1988, or no, 2008, I think. So I don't have to get too worried about the politics today. Right. What, what I have felt for myself, certainly when I started this, is um, how little I knew. I mean, yes, I knew the Korean War, but it wasn't, I mean, maybe it was different. You and I are the same age, right? So maybe it was uh, I've, different. I knew very little about it. As yeah, well. I mean, I, I knew there was North and South Korea. I knew there was the Korean War, but I didn't really, I didn't know, for example, that Korea was a Japanese colony. Right. And I, our education in this country traditionally has been so Eurocentric, 
And, you know, we know all about World War II in Europe, but, you know, all the movies, all the books, all the television shows, but still very, very little that talks about World War II in the Pacific theater. I mean, there are a few movies and a few books, but very little. And so we not only do we not get it in our education, we haven't gotten it in in popular um well, popular culture popular is filled with, culture. filled with stereotypes right. and filled with so, misconception and all of that. I, I was less concerned with where we are today than how we've gotten here and just how much I, I didn't know and how to try to lay, you know, layer that in so it's not just a history book. Right, but it is, you do learn history, mm-hmm. which is the beauty of almost all, all of your books, mm-hmm. is that... It's almost the best way of learning history, mm-hmm. which is through people's experiences. Right. You've been involved in film, and I'm sure you're involved in options. Yeah, yeah. What is your relationship to that? When you do with that, with the one that became the film, were you very involved with it in any real sense? They wanted my advice on everything. They sent me every draft of the script. I told them exactly what I thought, and they just went and did what they wanted. And I think that that's pretty common. Um, I don't think anybody ever sets out to make a bad movie. I think everybody sets out with the best possible intentions, uh, but it doesn't always work out that way. Yeah, no, well, that's true. I mean, it's the opposite of being able to control things. Right, because you can't control it's it. A con- it's a collaboration, and sometimes there are too many cooks, and well, then and things I, get actually, all confused. I have a, we have a very good friend uh, who's a film critic, and as that for Snowflower and the Secret Fan as it was getting developed and I could I could you could kind of see the handwriting on the wall and I'd say to him you know I'm just so worried I'm so worried about what people who love the book are going to say and he said well you just have to remember what James M. Cain always said and for those who don't know he you know he's just, he wrote these classics um, Postman Always Rings Twice, Twice. Um, uh, Double Indemnity Um, Mildred Pierce, and even his films. These are considered classic, classic films. But in the moment, he'd have people come up to him and say, how could you let them do that to your book? Right. And he always answered, they did nothing to my book. It's sitting right there on the shelf. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, and so that, that just helped me so much. It just really helped me. Well, Lisa, this has been a real pleasure to be able to sit down with you and talk. And, uh... Again, I thank you very much. And I w- I'm only ending this because we have an event that's about I to start in a few minutes. <laughs> People are gathering. We've got a full out, like a sold out house. And you're going to be in conversation with a, a wonderful woman that you're about to meet, Claudia Potamkin. And uh, again, thank you so much. Thank you. This was luck. really fun. Yeah, Thanks. it was fun for me too. And good luck on the rest of your thank tour. You. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts. And also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.